0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. As you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10, we've been talking about what it means to follow Christ, disciple of Christ. Is one who has denied themselves, taken up the cross and follow him. It's one who has an uncompromising commitment to follow Christ at all costs, ready to abandon all things so that they may acquire the things of Christ. And that's what a disciple is. But let me ask you, as you turn your Bible to turn to Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. Let me ask you this question. What brings you joy? And and go ahead and give me some feedback. What, What brings you joy in life? Okay, your grandchildren? What's that? Kids? Kids? You okay? uh, kids in general or just your kids in particular? <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> okay. Now, isn't it amazing that the thing, things that bring us joy can also bring us much pain and suffering and like, uh, anything else? What, what things kind of bring you joy? Maybe a nice car, beautiful car that rides smooth, right? A paycheck, yeah? One that actually cashes and pays for things. Maybe it's a good meal, or maybe it's just a good movie. Maybe it's just time with people. But there are things that bring us joy. And there's a little bit of difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is one of those things that we always say, we want to be happy. But happiness is one of those that are fleeing, right? Anyone ever driven on the 91, the 241, the 5, whatever? If There you enjoy happiness. You got a good stretch of road ahead of you, and then, ah, the red lights. You know, it's like a parking lot. Okay, but joy is something a little bit different. Joy is something that I think of the old children's song, right? I've got love like an ocean, you know, it's deep, it's wide. I've got peace like a river that it slowly flows. By the way, anyone here from Southern California Lifetime? Okay, so a river is something that actually comes through nature without concrete underneath it. You know, it's not just a runoff drain, but it's it's something that's peaceful. Then there's something I've always wanted to live by, a, like a crick or a creek. A creek is a little small one, or a river. It just that's so peaceful. But then the song goes, "I've got joy like a fountain." You know, it kind of bubbles up. There's something about fountains. When kids see fountains, they just want to go in there, right? And they just want to be in there. And it's just something that gives you a little bit more joy. You kind of know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what joy is. It's something that just kind of bubbles up within us and just gives us a sense of feeling that's hard sometimes to understand to, and, and sometimes for other people to understand. In our passage today, as we've been going on, Jesus is continuing his instructions with the 72, along with some warnings, as we saw last week, about those who reject uh, their ministry. And you, we need to understand, as disciples of Christ, we're called to share the ministry of God, right? But there are going to be people who are going to accept it, and there are going to be people who reject it. And sometimes the rejection is going to be something very, very hostile. We live, by the way, in a world that is very hostile to our faith. And we need to understand that. One of the things that I pray for our, our, our grandchildren and even our little granddaughter that's coming is that God would prepare them to live in a world that's going to be very, very hostile to their faith. The world that you grew up is going to be much different than your children and so on and so forth. They're, they're going to live in a very, very post-post-post. Christian world and we need to understand that and to illustrate his point about the rejection those who reject Christ or the mission of the 72 as well as our ministry is that he referenced those three cities in Galilee and he compares their actions with the three ancient cities remember of Sidon, Tyre and, and, uh, uh, and Sodom those were cities that were representative or symbols of evil. And he says, you, Capernaum, you, Bethesda, you, of course, you that have had the privilege of seeing Jesus in the flesh and receiving the good things of Christ. He says, it will be better for Sodom than for you in the day of judgment. In other words, with great privilege, with great responsibility to quote kind of Spider-Man here comes, you know, you got, you got, there's a, there's a, there's a responsibility that comes with that privilege. But in today's passage, the 72 are now returning. It doesn't tell us how long it's been, but now they're returning. And Jesus, they're going to do a little quick debrief with Jesus on the success of their ministry, of their mission. So with that, it's here on the monitor. But again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Luke chapter 10, verses 17. Luke tells us that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Look at that. You know, there's that, that exclamation point. And he said to them, I saw Satan. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are are written in heaven. You may want to underline that. We're going to talk talk about that in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and help us to do that hard work of now digging into it, understanding what it is and what you're saying here. And then how do we apply it now 2,000 years later? How how does this give us joy? How does this strengthen our belief and faith in you? How does this make us not just better Christians, but Lord, uh, desires uh, or those that seek the kingdom of God? But help us to understand that. Help us respond to your Spirit's work in your name. Amen. Now, from the report of the 72, it seems that their mission trip is a great success. As they traveled ahead to remember, they traveled ahead to the various villages and towns, letting them know, hey, Jesus is coming. And just to give you a preview of how great Jesus is, we're going to do some some miracles. We're going to do some healing. So it's kind of like an advanced team, right? Advanced publicity team for Jesus. And they they go to all these villages and towns and says, Jesus is coming. The 72's joy, though, as we see here in Luke, was based on their unexpected power over demons. Now, Jesus had instructed them back in verse 8, if you're still in Luke 10, when you enter a town, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And this was similar to the instructions that were given to the 12 back in the last chapter, chapter 8, I believe. Or chapter nine. However, the 12 were specifically given authority over supernatural powers, as we see in chapter nine, verse one, where Jesus called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So for the 72, this newfound power was an unexpected surprise that brought them joy. It's important to note that their power was not found in any type of specialness other than the fact that they were doing it in the name of Christ. As you see there, it says, the demons are subject to us in your name. One theologian points out that exorcism is not an incantation or or, or something of that nature, but signifies authority. It is in the name of someone. Now, Jesus had already uh, illustrated his authority and power over supernatural beings by commanding them to be quiet, uh, to leave their human host. We've seen these already in the gospel of Matthew, Mark and Luke that we've worked through. The demons themselves have confessed that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the son of God, the almighty. And they pleaded with him not to send them to the abyss. So, so the demons understand and accept the authority of Christ. James had written in his letter, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But I want to take a moment and consider some of the words that were used here. First, as you see joy, that means happiness. But even more than that, it's a gladness. It's something that's found outside of circumstances and things that are happening to you. We also see that word, they're subject to them. That means to, to subordinate or submit, to have dominion over them. Same way in a way when it comes to authority. It means to one who has dominion over, the right to govern or control. So the, the demons in the name of Christ, were, or I'm sorry, the apostles in the name of Christ were able to have dominion and brought the, the demons into subjection to be able to tell them what to do. And again, demons are fallen angels that serve as Satan's minions. Now, it's not hard to imagine the joy they experienced that they discovered such newfound power over the supernatural world. For reference, during Jesus' ministry, there seemed to be an outpouring of demonic activity as you read through the Gospels. In the first century uh, BC, or first century AD, is that what you and I know as first century, is there was a lot of demonic uh, activity going on. One writer, Tom Smith, writes in his article, he says, To the author of the Jewish book Tobit, which was an intertomestic, it was written uh, between the Old Testament, Malachi, and between Matthew and the New Testament, he seems to assume a belief in the following. Angels, demons, mystical or ceremonial means of removing a demon through ritual. So they believe in demons and they believed that they could have authority through rituals and the need to pray to God who would ultimately provide safety and deliverance. Why? Because there was demons about, this is something that you and I don't have much of a concept of, and unfortunately, the concepts that we usually come come through Hollywood, and, and it's misused it and made it in such a way that it, it doesn't reflect any of what a true worldly uh, uh, demon would look like. In the first century, Jewish historian Josephus mentions the practice of exorcism in his writings. And he describes it as both something that was ancient before him and something that was modern, something that was happening during his time. He describes the manner of exorcism to include the use of sense to drive out demons. They would light candles or fragrances and incense. And uh, then mentioning the name of Solomon of all people and reciting Solomon's incantation, which he goes on then to give us. He goes on to reveal that the necessity to link to the power with, uh, is with the ancient power. So they would use the names of David or Abraham or Solomon, some type of thing, say the name, and the use of fumes to expel a demon. And so this is one of the things that was happening quite a bit. So for them to see all of a sudden that they could exercise a demon, not by uh, say, saying an incantation or using the na- name of David or Solomon, But just to say it in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ, be gone. That was unexpected. It was a surprise and it filled them with joy. So understanding that background, you can understand the joy that they were undergoing, the surprise that they had. However, Jesus replies that they should not be surprised at this newfound power. Since as the son of God, he himself had witnessed the downfall of Satan. Look at verse 18, back at verse 18 of Luke 10. Jesus says, I saw Satan like lightning or fall like lightning from heaven. Now, lightning there refers to a suddenness. Now, we had something that just happened wonderful here this last month or so. Did anyone get to see the thunder and the light or hear the thunder and see the lightning? Is that something that you may not see much here, but lightning is just, there's something amazing about watching lightning. We we see it and we just want to go outside and watch. And I've shared that before here, but it's not the brightness, which uh, lightning can be very bright, but it's the suddenness. It just comes all of a sudden. I have to say, Don made fun of me at one of them. We were down there and I wasn't looking at the sky at the moment. I was doing something out on the porch and all of a sudden the lightning just came really quick and I just kind of startled and jumped. And of course she caught it and she hasn't let me live it down. But it's that suddenness of, of coming that it catches you. And that's what we're seeing here as Jesus says, I saw Satan fall suddenly from heaven. And those Jesus reply, it echoes back to Isaiah 14 verse 12, where it's instead of Satan, you can see it here on the monitor, where the prophet says, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, Who you who have laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. You see, Satan had a pride problem. He had an eye problem. I will do this. I will be like God. But in verse 15, instead of ascending, instead of being like God, like God we see the scripture says, you've been brought down to Sheol, to the grave, to the far reaches of the pit. We also read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, again, here on the monitor, and the great dragon was thrown down. By the way, you always say, why do you say that the story of the Bible is that the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl? That's the story of the Bible, right? It's a story that everyone loves. Uh, Hollywood's fallen in love with, Disney love, uh, Disney, all fairy tales. The prince slays the dragon. What's well, right here in scripture. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. It's amazing. He begins as a serpent in Genesis. At the beginning of time, he winds up at the end, a dragon. That's kind of that illustration. He's grown in power. He's grown in his influence. Satan was created as one of God's angels and he was cast from his former position When sin was found in him, I will ascend. I will. He is now the adversary of God. That's what the term Satan means. It's not his first name. It means adversary, an enemy. He's the father of all lies and the accuser of the believers. Though powerful and constantly working against God's will, he's seeking to destroy and kill. He is marked, though, for judgment and will one day be thrown into the lake of fire. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew, if you would, real quickly. Matthew chapter 12. (coughs) As already mentioned, Jesus has demonstrated his power and authority over Satan and his demons. When he was tempted in the the wilderness, and when he was casting out demons among the Pharisees and others. But as you come to Matthew chapter 12... In verse 24, do you see that Jesus is accused by the Pharisees of being actually an agent of Satan? But when the Pharisees heard what Jesus was saying and doing, they said, it's only by Beelzebub. That's another name for Satan. It means prince of flies, prince of dung That's what it means. The prince of demons that this man cast out demons. In other words, he's only casting out Satan because he's one of Satan's agents. They can't They can't say that he's the Son of God or he's the Messiah because that would give Jesus credibility. So they say, no, he's working for the enemy. But Jesus, being the rational, logical God he is, says in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. Everyone knows this. No city or house divided against itself will stand. He understands this. And if Satan has cast out Satan, uh, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If if I'm an agent of God and I'm casting out demons, how in the world is this? It's just a house of cards then. How will it stand? What you're saying is illogical. Verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, there were Jewish exorcists, as we said before. There were many demonic activities, and there were Jewish men and women who worked as that as a living going around casting out demons. So who are they doing? Are you saying then that they too are of Satan? That doesn't make any sense. Therefore, they will be your judges. But in verse 28, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons in the kingdom of God, has come upon you. Remember, that's what they're preaching, right? The kingdom of God. The, the, the power to subject demons to in the name of Christ was to demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God. And that is, come. Verse 29, Or can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he binds the strong man? We understand that. I, 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 no one's going to come into your house and just steal from you unless they incap- uh, 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 take you down and tie you up. Then indeed he may plunder his house unless he first binds them. This is your thinking is all illogical. The fact that Jesus and his disciples and now the 72 are able to cast demons out proves that the kingdom of God has come with power, with authority. This is reflected in Jesus' words when he says, going back to Luke chapter 10, look at verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And look at this, and nothing shall hurt you. That's a strange phrase. That's a difficult phrase. In scripture and even today in contemporary culture, snakes and scorpions are symbols of evil and danger, right? No one likes scorpions and serpents, right? No, no one likes those. Along with uh, what's those? Uh, the spiders. You know, I, everything's named with an S. I don't know about that. But in Scripture, when you see scorpions and snakes, typically it represents Satan and his multitude of minions. In Romans chapter sixteen, verse twenty, the Apostle Paul promises that the God of peace will come upon you and will soon crush Satan under your feet. If you want another name for Christ, think of snake crushers. He's the snake crusher, the snake eater. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. And this truth that that Jesus will crush Satan under his feet is grounded in the promise of Genesis 3.15. Soon after Adam and Eve rebelled against God by rejecting his word and following the advice of Satan, remember, eat this this fruit, it'll make you wise. He caused them to doubt, to deny, to reject God's word. He goes on to say, God promises them that he is going to provide a savior to defeat Satan once for all, that serpent. You know this verse, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan may make an attack, but his, his snake bite is, is going to be temporary. But he will crush your head. He will step on your head and crush you. Jesus is the ultimate snake crusher. Jesus wants his disciples and us as well to understand that Satan is a defeated foe and he has no power to harm God's children. However, that seems odd to you and I, because I would say, many of us would say, babe, wait a second, I'm harmed every day. My life is full of suffering. I feel Satan's attacks every day. Well, let me encourage you that, yes, he may be able to tempt you and draw you away from God temporarily. He may accuse us before God and before our own eyes. He may prowl around like a lion, seeking to devour, to paralyze, and cause us to doubt God or deny God, but he has no true power to harm our soul. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, here on the monitor, do you not fear those who could kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell see he has no power to harm us where it really truly matters jesus is not promising you that you won't have temptation that you won't have suffering that you won't have struggles that life won't be difficult he's not promising you that but he's promising that you will have the peace of god that we saw earlier in romans for god jesus has crushed satan's work In other words, all that Satan does, God subjugates and works for his glory and our good. And that's something that you and I have to remember, that suffering is part of the Christian life, it's part of all's life. But in our case, it works to our good and his glory. That's a tough thing to get to. We don't have time to get into that today. But it's tough to understand that suffering is part of our good, that God uses it for our good, but it's true. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that. The kingdom of God will overthrow the kingdom of Satan. He will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire forever. And as believers, we are called to exercise this authority and the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit in resisting and fighting him and his demonic host with an extreme confidence that God is on our side. and The knowledge that Jesus destroyed the works of Satan. We can say no to sin. We can say no to self-pity. We can have true joy even in the midst of the various trials and troubles that you and I have. Now this thought, this truth can be an encouragement to Christians today. Though tempted and tried and torn with heavy temptations and long trials and hurtful troubles, you and I can be victorious through the power of the Holy Spirit. However, we must not think, and here's a warning because this is where many people go wrong. We must not think that this power spoken here is meant to be thought of as some type of superhero ability. All right? We are to be humbled and cautious and sobering in concerning the works of Satan and his demons. For many, they have adopted unbiblical principles and applications of this teaching by teaching that we are able to go and bound Satan wherever we found him by saying some magical incantation or some word or by some of their names. That we can bind demons and there's generational curses and all this kind of foolishness and nonsense. But these things we need to recognize are distracting of our real mission and it's dangerous in practice. You and I are called to share the ministry of God, to, to share the love of God, not going about uh, trying to, to undo God's work. Christ is the one who has defeated Satan, who has dealt him the fatal blow. The disciples were filled with joy at their newfound power. and Who would blame them? Power is a very seductive element. We all seek power. We all do in some form or fashion. History is replete with exploits of those who have sought and attained power and abused it. Even today, every facet of our culture is centered on attaining power. We have bought into, as Christians, we have bought into philosophies, worldviews, and systems that have categorized people as either oppressors or oppressed. And so the joy is that we need to, or our our job is then to, to turn that around. They are blinded by the desire to overthrow those in power so that they themselves may acquire the same power. And this has on, gone on for centuries, time after time. King Solomon warned us in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8. You see it here on the monitor. That all things are full of weariness. Did I put that on there? Did I not? I did not. So I'll just read it. He goes on to say that all things are full of weariness. You can say amen to that. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? We continue on day after day. And followers of Christ are not immune from this desire to acquire power, except that we baptize it, we redeem it. And proclaim that we will use it for good to share the gospel to help the suffering. I think one of the worst things that we've seen here in America is we've taken Christianity and we baptized it. Or we've taken American nationalism and baptized it. And we have this type of Christian patriotism, which is married Christianity and and national patriotism, which is a, a good thing, by the way. There are some very good things we should be proud to be citizens of this country. We we should be good citizens and and, and do all the things that God has called us to do as citizens of this earth. However, in the same way, we've made it to where we want political power. Right now, we're bemoaning the fact that Christians have lost political power as if the only way that the kingdom of God will advance is through political power, social power, or cultural power. Let me tell you, that is hogwash. That's Greek for means it's, it's junk. All right, there is no such thing. If we have no political power, no culture, Hollywood just bemoans us and makes fun of us. If Madison Square just takes us all from from baking and everything, let me tell you this, that the kingdom of God will advance one heart at a time because the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. That's the kingdom of God. And so you and I must understand and not be drawn into that and find joy in any new found power that we have. And so many times we have fallen to that. But we say, well, we're going to share the gospel. We're going to help the suffering. Yet in the end, we find ourselves using power in the same self-serving way. In response to their joy, Jesus offers a mild rebuke. Did you see that? A mild rebuke that we all must take to heart. Look at Luke chapter 10, going back verse 20. He says, nevertheless, yes, you have power. You will be able to tread on on scorpions and serpents. They will not be able to harm or hurt you. But nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. What a great power. But don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. You need to underline that phrase. You need to highlight it. That's where you and I are going to park. With this statement, Jesus is redirecting their hearts, the sum of their thoughts, their affections, and their will to the real treasure that's found in following Jesus. Jesus. And that's our eternal inheritance. It's the possession of being a child of God. And here's the spiritual truth. If you're taking notes, you need to see it's here on the monitor so you can have it. The spiritual truth that's found in this passage is that greater joy is found in our position rather than our power. You and I need to find joy. Not in just a good meal or in our grandchildren or children and all those things are wonderful. But our real joy is to be found in our position, not in our power. The greater joy is not power over demons, but the assurance of our inheritance in heaven as children of God. That's our position as child of God. And I want us this morning to consider our position today. Not in the worldly sense as where do I live, where do I work, how much money do I make, what is my retirement investments, what's the color of my skin, what is my sex, or what are my gender, or my political philosophy. Those are all the things that the world wants you to concentrate. What is your position, what group do you belong in? What is your intersectionality? What what ways do you need to grab more power? That is not how we are to see life. Our true position in this world is not found in your economic, social, culture, or political reality. It's not found in how many likes you get on, uh, on Facebook, how many hearts you get on Instagram, uh, how many retweets you get on Twitter, and all the other things that are out there. This is not what our position is found in. Scripture tells us that our position as believers is in Him. But what does it mean to be in Him. The apostle Paul informs us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. See, there's a new position. I once was outside of Christ, but now I'm put in in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Turn, if you would, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be there in the book of Ephesians for the rest of our message. The Bible tells us that we are in Christ. In other words, our whole being, our whole identity, and our purpose is found in our position in Christ. It is only in our position in Christ that you and I have hope, confidence, and yes, even power. We are no longer in or of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you should be there by now, hopefully. If not, it's just in the New Testament. Just work your way through it. We'll be there. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes this Here was our first and former position. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That was your position. In what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen to this. This was our natural born state. We were dead in sin. Ignorantly following our own selfish desires. Our position was that of a son of disobedience and the object of God's wrath. None of us were with any hope of rectifying our position or appeasing a holy God. We were out of position, so to speak. We were outside of God. Yet, as we continue in chapter 2 of Ephesians, look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with thee loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Again, when we were dead in that position, what it says, he made us alive together with Christ. He took us from that old position and he puts us in a new one. By grace, you have been saved. And look at verse six, and raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus. We once were dead, placed here as the object of wrath. We are now placed with Christ, seated with Him. We have a new position. God, in His great love and mercy, changed our position. He lifted us up, not due to our goodness or power, but due to the active and passive obedience of Christ. I've mentioned this before the active obedience of Christ is where He lived, He obeyed the Father. And he lived thirty three years. And listen to this: during his thirty three years, young people, can you imagine this? He did everything his parents said to do without any problems, without ever giving them any um, uh, back talking. Could you imagine being one of Jesus' brothers and sisters? Well, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know, why can't you clean your room like Jesus? Why can't you listen to me like Jesus? Oh, then you get the same teacher that Jesus is. Well, why can't you write your Hebrew letters the same way that Jesus wrote them? Well, he is the word. I mean, what are you going to say, you know? Even Joseph trying to teach Jesus how to do woodwork. Oh, well, I created this tree. I I suppose I can make that into something. Could you imagine that? I don't even know how that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. (laughs) But his act of obedience is he did everything Perfect. He kept all 696 uh, laws that were there, including the great 10, right? He did all of that perfectly. Now he gives that to you. You and I stand in Christ, not because of any good that you've done, but because what Christ did for you. See, God imputed that to us. He took the works of Christ and says, when I look at you, I'm not going to look at your dirty old works. I'm going to look at the works of Christ. So when God, I believe Adam and Eve, by the way, this is offside. I believe Adam and Eve is in heaven. And I don't think he sees Eve taking the fruit and being deceived by, the, by Satan. I think he looks at the works of Christ. He said, Christ obeyed me, so therefore you get into heaven. That's how you and I all get there. Why do you get to go in this heaven? Because of the works of Christ. I have no other standing other than that. I am in him. But also we see his passive obedience. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's the cross. Now that doesn't seem very uh, a passive, but in this case, Jesus obeyed the Father By passively allowing himself to be betrayed, tortured, beaten, and put on that cross by the very people he created, by the nails that he allowed them to invent, the tree that he grew from nature. That's the passive of obedience. I am in Christ. In other words, I stand in his shoes. So when God looks at me, he does not see me, my evil, my schemes. He sees Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. And if I am in Christ, I'm a new creature. If I'm in Christ, I'm no, other, no longer a son of disobedience. I am now seated with him. That's the wonder the wondrous mercy and grace that I am in Christ, a new position, not because of anything I've done, but all because of what Christ has done. And through this work, Christ—we through Christ's work, we have been saved. We've been made a new creature with a new position and a new identity. We are to rejoice not in the power that you and I may have in this temporary world, but in our position. Paul writes in Colossians, is this one up here, Ben? Yeah, thank you. Sometimes I do that and I forget to put stuff up. Here's again another new position. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sin. Again, a new position. There are many reasons to rejoice in this new position. The position of salvation or this position of salvation, Christ includes nine wonderful wondrous gifts of mercy you're going to see them up here I believe did I put that up there I hope so thank you first is election God called us before the time he chose us not because of anything that we've done but just because he decided to love us We see that effective call where God calls us and drawing. It wasn't our own mind. It wasn't our own reason. It wasn't the the intellectual part of us that says, Oh, yeah, this makes sense. So I'm going to come to God. No, it's the Holy Spirit calling us. It's regeneration. He makes us born again. We must be born again. That's the position. He gives us a new heart conversion is giving us the opportunity where we now can repent of our faith and turn and trust christ if he hadn't done the first three we never could do the fourth we always win we want to make the fourth salvation is about me i chose christ no the bible tells us that he chose us before the foundation of the world number four this is justification this is how we are made right with god Not that we are right, but God says, I no longer see you as guilty or sons of disobedience. I now see you as one of my children. Then he adopts us and he gives us the benefits of a son and a daughter. We no longer are slaves, but now children of God. And then he goes on and gives us sanctification where we grow and we become more like Christ. Not that we're perfect in any way and we'll never grow to be perfect in this this body. That will happen one day. But where he gives us his grace and his blessing to have the fruit of the spirit. Perseverance, number, nine, or number eight, is where he gives us eternal security. Nobody can snatch us from God's hand. No one can take us from that position. That is ours for eternity, amen? We can never be taken out. We can never give it away. We can never lose it. Death, now that's not so much wondrous. But death comes to all of us. I'm not so much fearful of death. I'm just fearful how it might happen. And number 10 is glorification. That's receiving the resurrected body. That's knowing him as we are known. That's being with him in his presence. And this is what it means to be in Christ. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in your power, but rejoice in the fact your name is written in heaven. That is where your true position is. Again, this is what causes us to rejoice and to live lives of joy, that no matter how much suffering comes, God will help me to endure. It doesn't matter how bad I feel and how many times I fall in, in temptation, God is still making me grow. When I feel guilt and shame, when I look in the eyes in the mirror and I have a hard time looking in my own eyes, the joy comes knowing that It's not because of my goodness, but because of Christ that I'll stand before him. This should cause and give you joy. This should be the source. This should be the fountain that bubbles up with joy because of these truths. Jesus describes the salvation as having our name written in heaven. That's what it's talking about there. Scriptures have many pages that speak of this position. In Exodus 32, Moses refers to this as he begs for mercy on the children of uh, Israel when he pleads. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. There seems to be a sense in which there's a book he's symbolizing where our names are written, where Jesus and God knows who are his. In Daniel 12, we see the same thing. We see during the time of tribulation, it says, your people, those shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. See, there's a position. You're either in the book or you're out of the book. Your position, by the way, in case you might be wondering, needs to be in the book. You need to leave today knowing that your name is written in the book. Today is the day of salvation. Do not leave it. Don't be hopeful that you're on the register of heaven, that you can get in. This is not some worldly club where you can get in because you look good or have money or have influence. The balancer of heaven is not going to be able to be bribed. That was silly, but it worked. Tony, can you cut that out when we put that in? In In the Philippines, not the Philippines. Here we go. In Paul's letter to the Philippines. No, to Philippians, to the Church of Philippi. Boy, I just apologize to all people from that wonderful nation, Island. Those that have partnered with him in ministry, he says, Lord, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Paul goes on and says, help these women. They're fighting, they're arguing. Go figure. I shouldn't have said that either. Boy, I'm in, I'm in trouble. My position is getting precarious, I think. He says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement." and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in where? The book of life. And then, of course, Revelation. Do I have this one up here? I did. Wow. Once I make that one mistake, then I, just, then I just think, I don't know, I might have done it all. Here in Revelation, it says, I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne. One day, this is the end for all people. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave it the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave it the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. That was their position. Verse 14. Then death and Hades was thrown into the, uh, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second date, the lake of fire. By the way, hell hell is not our final resting place. It's the lake of fire, the eternal punishment and judgment of God. Look at verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the, written in the book of life, if they are not positioned there, he too was thrown into where? The lake of fire. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That's the source and fountain of our joy. If you're still in Ephesians, can you turn to chapter 1? We're almost done here. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, I want to look at a passage that Landon read earlier in our scripture reading. I don't know if you noticed that, but there were some phrases, in him, speaking of our position. This new position that we are in Christ, in him, we, we have our name written in heaven, that we have salvation because of Christ's work. This new position is a call for joy because we read, we read that in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You and I are truly and fully forgiven with no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, right? There's therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God was satisfied. I was telling Brandon, we did that song. Uh, oh, we're going to do it here in a, in a minute. It's in Christ alone. This week is the 20th anniversary of that song. And what's interesting is one Presbyterian church wanted to put that song in their hymnal. And they wanted, though, the only request they had is, we want to take out the phrase, when God's, uh, when God's wrath was satisfied. And we'll sing it here in a minute. And I want you to think about that song when we sing it. Was satisfied. They wanted to take that out because they, they felt that was too strong. When God's wrath was. No one wants to think of God's wrath. We want to think of God's love, right? God is love. But let me tell you, God is wrath. Okay, God is wrath as well. He's justice. They wanted to change it. In Christ, God's love was magnified. True statement. God demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, right? God showed his love. However, it's taking out the very atonement of what you and I need. We are only in Christ because God's wrath was satisfied. And so you need to understand that. If you are not in Christ, God's wrath will be poured out on you. And at that moment when Jesus, when the wrath of God was poured out on him, what did he cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can rest because of that we can rest in our futile effort and self-righteousness. It's not about doing right. It's about being made right, declared right. In the next verse, it says, in him, you can find it there. I don't have the verse number, but you can find it. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Underline those in him phrases, by the way. In him, we have, we have redemption. In him, we have attained an inheritance. Scripture tells us that this inheritance is undefiled is unfading and is imperishable and it's kept in heaven for us. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be taken away and it cannot be lost because our position is secure, which leads us to the next one, that in him we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. The third person, the Trinity, is guarantee of our inheritance. We cannot give it back. It cannot be lost. It cannot be snatched from us. Inflation cannot take it away or eat away at it. There is no recession in heaven. Satan no longer has any claim on our soul, no matter what he may accuse us of. Satan accuses you today. Even maybe in the day you might have blown it on your way to church, right? The most stressful time in any family is getting ready for church, is it Not? And then you get out of the car. There's a funny video. I got to find that video and show it to you one of these days. This family is in the car. They're driving to church. They're yelling and screaming. Brother and sister are fighting over something. And they're just telling the dad. He says, just stop it. I'm tired of all this. They open their door and say, ah, we're here at church. They grab their Bibles and they have their mask on, right? Masquerade masks as they walk into church. Because this is what we want people to see. But we have redemption, we have attained adherence, and it's sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let me close by saying this. These wonderful truths should encourage us during those difficult days when we feel powerless, voiceless, or helpless. And sometimes those times come in great waves, right? That overwhelm us. Sometimes it might be just once in a while, but sometimes we may just feel like we're underwater all the time. But let me tell you, there is power in the name of Christ. For those that are in Christ, we have power due to our position as children of God, joint heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. So let us not be distracted with a power that this world craves. Stop, stop striving after the values of this world, please, Christian. We must be like the 72 must find joy in proclaiming that Jesus is returning, Be reconciled to God. Let us not be tempted by the false promises of Satan. Let us not seek satisfaction in earthly riches or position, but only in that our names are written in the book of life. What is your position this morning? Is your name written there? John has said, I've written these things that you may know. Please know today, what is your true position? If not, then turn to Christ. For only in Christ will you have the position of being seated with him. If you are a Christian and you're seated with him, then find joy in that, not in your circumstances. That's happiness. That's that's fleeting. That's here. That's gone tomorrow. But recognize that it's about to be in Christ. Let me close with this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, and defiled, and unfading, that's kept in heaven for you, we've said this. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Let's rejoice in our position, not in any power that we may obtain. Very head bowed and eye closed. I'm gonna ask Randy to come up as well as the worship team. He'll close us in prayer and then we'll sing one last song. And I want us to consider this last song we sing in Christ. Because it's such a wonderful truth. I pray here this morning that you are in Christ. If not, would you come to him now? Do not delay, be with him today. Just join in prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Until next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.